Wannabe cowboys and readers riding off into the West. That's right. It's Jude and John here for another episode of the Book Exchange Podcast. Glad you're with us. Jude, I assume you're on the line and ready to ready to roll or ready to ride. I am ready to wrestle. <laughs> Let's go. All right. This is episode 36. And on today, on this episode, we are taking on Western literature, essentially, we um, we toyed around with this topic. Uh, we wanted to talk about the American West. This has been a topic we wanted to talk about for for some time, really, since we started the show. Just haven't gotten to it yet. But then, you know, the the American, uh, you know, the topic is as wide open and expansive and broad and in, intimidating in a way as the American West itself. So <laughs> what we decided yeah. to do, uh, we were comparing lists and how we want to kind of break it down. And, you know, we had a number, of, you know, you think of Western sort of as a genre. So there are like, you know, cowboy Native American books, uh, you know, from the fiction side, speaking generally. And then um, there's also the American West as a subject, which is a fascinating and, as I said, expansive subject. So we decided to, this episode, we're just going to focus on fiction today. We're going to focus on, for lack of a better term, Western novels, talk about what those are, what they mean, you know, our experience in, in reading them and make some recommendations, kind of what we usually do as we dive into a subject. And, you know, at a later time, we will probably pick this theme up again and talk about the American West as a subject of, of nonfiction writing and literature, and there's tons to you know, dig into there as well. So we decided, you know, rather than try to, you know, cram it all in there and kind of just touch the surface, we just focus on fiction today. So that is the episode for today. We're talking about Western literature. Um, and by Western, of course, I'm, I mean the American West and kind of that whole mythology um, that uh, most listeners will be familiar with. But well, so first of all, Jude, any, any comments you want to make about the topic we're taking on today? No, not 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 really, John. The only I guess the only thing I would say is that yeah, it was uh, even by our standards because we we on, on this show we've chosen some very broad themes, you know, that you could take in many directions. This one seems it's just sort of I guess we've been saying it all week, you know, sort of allegorical to the American West itself. You know, it's just this broad, broad, wide open vista, and there were so many directions we could take it. We just decided we had to you know put some borders around it a little bit <laughs> and so there were still gazillions of novels to choose from so i, I think we're still going to have quite a broad range of western theme novels but we had to do something because it's just such a broad wide topic the american west you know yeah and i and i forgot to mention this i should have mentioned that opening intro music you heard uh is a classic kind of cowboy crooning from uh the late dean martin from the movie 
Rio Bravo, kind of a classic Western, uh, which I it touches on some of the, you know, sort of uh, maybe cliche, but I would say iconic sort of iconography and images from the American West. So I sort of couldn't resist that. But I think Rio Bravo is, is a is a movie that you still haven't seen. Right, Jude? No, I haven't seen that, no. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's great. It's kind of a classic American Western, uh, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, we've already covered what we're talking about. I do want to mention, you know, a, a little bit of a, a shift of gears here, but we are recording on September 11th, 2021. This, of course, as all of our United States-based listeners uh, will know, and just about everybody who might hear this around the world who realize this is a very significant, very somber um, anniversary for the United States of America. Of course, the uh, 20 years ago today on, on a beautiful, where I am, the weather is beautiful and blue and clear, and that's what it was like uh, in New York City and on the East Coast on that on that fateful day. So just wanted to mention that, and, and I, I thought we could just take a minute or two, Judah, if you have any we're not going to go too long, but if you have any reminiscences or comments you want to make about about this anniversary, go for it. Yeah, John, I think it is important to mention, you know, it, it's a very important day in the United States, you know, just for the fact of remembering all those people who lost their lives. And, you know, this incident that anybody who was alive for really changed their lives. And, you know, our subject today, while it's the West, this is this is America, you know, so it's a it's uh, the West is a huge part of the American story and landscape, but 9-11 was a day about, you know, in a way about the United States in both a horrific way, but also in a coming together kind of way. And I, I would just say, you know, I, I, I worked in New York City. I literally worked right across the street from the World Trade Center um, for two and a half years leading right up to August 2001. However, my company was bought by a Dutch company and they bought a facility in southern New Jersey. And I moved, uh, I physically moved um, only five weeks, uh, like the August 1st time frame, um, to this other, another part of New Jersey. So I started working at this other facility, but um, I came up through the World Trade Center every single day for two and a half years. And many of my colleagues were in there you know, right across from where this was happening on the on the day that took place. So that's how my life brushed with it. I, I knew I knew and still know all the areas right around the World Trade Center very, very well. My wife and I met in between the World Trade Center for our second date back in 2000. Um, so I just knew those areas and I knew exactly, you know, you know, at least where it was going down. But yeah. And that's as far as I'll go. So I just had a lot of associations with where the New York attacks happened. But I just want to say, you know, my heart goes out to those people who lost people in Pennsylvania and the Pentagon and in New York City. And uh, we'll never forget it. So over to you. Absolutely. And, um, you know, listeners may not realize, you know, I, I've mentioned before, I live in Maryland. Drew lives in Pennsylvania, but we both grew up in New Jersey, spent, you know, the bulk of our childhood and our formative years there, kind of right in the shadow of New York City. Um, I too used to work, uh, I worked on Wall Street, so I commuted and came up, you know, through the past station right under the World Trade Center towers for about nine months. So not as long as you did, but uh, I was pretty familiar with that whole area too. And um, it's always chilling to remember how, how, how close you came to, to being literally right there at ground zero 
for for this uh, horrible attack and these these uh, awful events. So that's chilling. Just on a personal note, um, but I remember I worked in an office in northern New Jersey. I happened to work for a digital uh, high high definition digital video company. So we had a studio that had tons of you know huge huge you know fifty plus inch screens where they're always doing testing, and so you know they put the they put the live news coverage on all these massive screen screens in this dark kind of digital studio, and we all were the whole company was standing there watching it. And it was, uh, we watched the second plane hit the second tower, you know, in the middle of the live broadcast, as you recall. Then we all went up to the roof of the building. You could see, you could actually see the smoke, you know, rising from, you know, in the direction uh, north of us. So it was a very chaotic, a lot of people had relatives, you know, who were, we had, I had a, a couple of really good friends who were working in Lower Manhattan at the time. So for those of us who were around there or around Washington, D.C. or Pennsylvania, there's, you know, you remember how, how traumatic that day was and, and, and it lingers. And we do want to, you know, just by way of wrapping up, we do want to, you know, pause to remember the lives of all the people who were lo- lost there and also to acknowledge all the brave men and women who, you know, uh, were on the cleanup and, and on the rescue details and uh, were to kind of restore New York City and the Pentagon and, you know, the country in a sense, you know, back to some semblance of normalcy so just wanted to acknowledge that anniversary and uh so we'll pause there take a break and then we'll come back and i I think we don't really need to go into any administrative stuff i don't think unless you have something pressing no okay so we'll pause there take a break and then we'll come back and we'll just dive right in okay Well, okay, before we saddle up and head west, we'll do what we always do, talk about what we've been reading lately. Jude, what do you got? Yeah, we can cover it quickly. So I was inspired a lot by, um, I was actually re-listening to our last episode, episode 35, Go Big or Go Home, about big books. And we we talked a little bit about one of um, the early books for both of us. Um, that was a, a big, you know, uh, sort of a gateway into reading larger books. So we spent a little time talking about those massive doorstop techno thrillers written by Tom Clancy. And I mentioned in the last episode that I actually had a used copy of Red Storm Rising, but I was just kind of sort of inspired by the conversation. And I, I really had meant to read it for years. So I said, you know what, I'm going to bump that up. And so I'm halfway through Red Storm Rising by Tom Clancy came out in 1986. And it's, uh, you know, wow. it's 
it's fun to read again. Last time I read, I was 19 years old. There are things about it that, you know, I wouldn't call a superlative from like a literary standpoint. I mean, but, and you definitely have to be into, you know, war, war stuff, warfare. So it's just like hundreds of pages of global combat, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. with, with a focus. This is basically a World War III novel that imagines the Russians rising up and, and basically it's interesting in a way because it's basically over fuel, um, oil. You know, and they have this disaster at the beginning of the book and they they, they realize that about 50 percent of their oil production will be crippled and they can't tolerate that. So they just say, essentially, well, we don't have the oil, so we're going to have to take it. And they <laughs> start World War Three, you know, <laughs> and it's it, anyway, it's just this lengthy account of uh, global combat. You know, I, I would say with a little bit of a primary focus on naval battles, because, you know, Tom Clancy was famous for the on for October which is a famous book about chasing a rogue uh, Soviet submarine. And if you're into the Cold War or the 80s or like, you know, Stranger Things or Red Dawn or all that kind of stuff, and you're into like, you know, nostalgia about the essentially the Cold War, the United States versus the bad, the bad guy Russians, it's a very fun book to read. But it is really long and it plods a lot. You know, you have to be willing to sit through a lot of, you know, j jumping around the globe, you know, just things blowing up each other but it's fun and I, i'm definitely enjoying it so that that's what i'm reading yeah that's great man that that kind of came off of our last episode so it's like you know i and this is one of the worst business cliches that there is but doing a little eating your own dog food there you know <laughs> <laughs> we try to <laughs> that was for you man we, we try to we try to practice what we preach here at the book exchange and so uh you know you dove right into it, you know, without intimidation into a massive, you know, classic 80s thriller. So I definitely salute that choice. And um, I myself am also into a rather large book, although it wasn't planned. And, and the book I'm reading will take us basically right into what we're here to discuss today. Um, I am about 100 pages from the end of a 19, a, a novel that came out in, I think, it's 1950 something. I don't remember exactly what year, but 1950s. Um, and it's called Warlock by Oakley Hall. And this is uh, probably Oakley Hall, I guess, was a was a fairly prominent writer, you know, in his time uh, and had a lot of interesting life experience. But by the way, you know, uh, living in Europe for a long time and served in the U.S. military, et cetera. But this is probably the novel he's most known for, although it's kind of you know, fallen by the wayside, not as well remembered right now. This was reissued, of course, by my favorite press, New York Review of Books. Um, and that's what they do. They kind of bring uh, books that have sort of been forgotten back into the back into the public light. So this is a it's about 500 pages. This is a long kind of meaty Western novel uh, that was adapted into a film, I, I think, in, in either this, I think maybe in the 1960s. Um, and I'm not going to I'm not going to try to sum up the plot it's actually kind of a complicated plot it, it, it's really sort of three books in one it has three books one is called the gunfight i mean just these titles you know will kind of uh you know set the stage for you a little bit one is called the gunfight at in in the acme corral that's book one book two is called the regulators and book three is called the antagonists and i'm about to crack into book three um 
without but without trying to summarize it's ba- this book is loosely based on kind of the uh the real life historical story slash myth around Wyatt Earp in Tombstone, Arizona. So it takes place in sort of a fictional town out in the desert in Arizona. There's a character who comes in and becomes basically the town marshal who's, you know, has a different name, but is essentially Wyatt Earp. And he's kind of, he's brought in because there's a group of, uh, you know, cattle rustlers, but also they're more dangerous than that. They uh, rob stagecoaches. They just kind of, uh, they're sort of a group of ruffians, but a, a deadly one um, that uh, is head up by a guy named Abraham McCown. So uh, it kind of is this classic story where it pits this sort of guy who comes riding into town to kind of, quote unquote, be the law where there is no law and protect the town from from a gang of rustlers and thieves and but it also weaves in there's a mining interest in the town and there are mines there and sort of there are a bunch of miners who try to form a union and at, in the second part the regulators uh the guy who owns the mine basically hires this guy abraham mccown and his and his men to become a group of what they call regulators which is basically to put down any kind of strikes or attempts to unionize so there's a lot that this book crams into it uh, that, you know, has to do with the American West and, you know, the themes that we'll explore today. Um, You know, the way justice is meted out, the way, uh, you you know, these establishments out in the West, before there was any established law and order, they kind of had to fend for themselves. So you had a lot of posses that are formed when there's somebody gets killed, they want to go and rustle them up and hang them. And, you know, you have people trying to, you know, enforce some kind of law. And so this book kind of brings all of those sort of classic elements together, but it's very dense and, and it's, it's not campy or anything like that. It's very seriously written and uh, I'm enjoying it. It's a dense read, but I'm enjoying it. But I think it's a, it's kind of a sets the table nicely for the discussion that we're about to have. So uh, yeah. So this is Warlock from the 1950s by Oakley Hall. Yeah. That sounds like a complicated book, but um you know, there's usually, you know, if it's published by New York Review Press and I'm with you, that's like my favorite press, too. And we, you know, we've we've waxed dork, dork, you know, dorkly about <laughs> that press for years and years, you know, titles from that. But they they always pick titles that have rich material, you know, and, it, and it's and, and the other thing they don't do is they definitely don't like dumb it down. They don't pick titles that are necessarily easy, you know, um, so. Great. Yeah, but it's it's kind of cool to get a Western title. I'm trying to remember if I've ever read a Western from that series. I, I don't know if I have. Well, there's one that I picked on my long list, that, sort of. But um, anyway, it sounds like a really rich and kind of meaty book. And you're right. It sets up the topic nicely. Well, and to set it up a little bit more, so and you'll find this interesting. It's going to sound like a diversion, but it's it's not. So there's an introduction to this particular volume by the novelist Robert Stone, who's someone you'll recognize the name, mm-hmm. and talks about how um, Oakley Hall, um, I don't know if he drew from it, but there's, there's a well-known kind of academic trilogy of books that's about the American West and the mythology that has grown up around it. I mentioned this to you before we you know, recorded by, by a professor named Richard Slotkin. Fascinating. I haven't read any of these books, but he wrote a trilogy of books. The first one is first volume is called Regeneration Through Violence. Second one is The Fatal Environment. And the third one has a great title, Gunfighter Nation. 
Wow. So these are three like big books about the American West and all the mythology. And so uh, in the introduction, Robert Stone kind of draws from these works to sort of elucidate some of the themes that are in Oakley Hall's book. And there's this fascinating passage that I thought I would read to you just because I thought you'd find it very interesting, but it's also, uh, again, kind of table setting for this discussion. Um, he says, as Slotkin writes, and Oakley Hall's novel subtly, subtly demonstrates, and then this is the quote from Slotkin. Very interesting. In American mythogenesis, the founding fathers were not those 18th century gentlemen who composed the nation at Philadelphia. Rather, they were those who, to paraphrase Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, tore violently a nation from implacable and opulent wilderness. The rogues, adventurers, and land boomers, the Indian fighters, traders, missionaries, explorers, and hunters who killed and were killed until they had mastered the wilderness. Mm. So I thought that was a fascinating, you know, kind of a bold claim, you know, about the founding fathers and whatnot. But that really sort of sets the table, I think, for, for what Western literature is really about and and um which is sort of to use a certain word the conquering of the west or the expansion to the west and all of the violence and bloodshed and sort of selfishness but also bravery and entrepreneurship and everything that goes into that both the good and the bad is really what we're talking about when we're talking about rest western novels yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Like as I, you know, I'm listening and that was a great quote. I think and it does set it up nicely. You know, at first I thought to myself, well, none of my or maybe only one or one of my the books that I chose that we're going to be discussing really speaks to those things directly. But then, you know, it took me 2 seconds and then I thought, well, no, actually all three all four of them, you know, kind of fit into that mold somewhere as far as um you know, uh these books just in general, like he's saying, have to do with the, the, I guess the spirit of America in a sense, like the, the people who, you know, sort of went out and, you, you know, like the language he used sort of eked out or carved out, you know, what America is for better or for worse from this vast expanse of wilderness. And in some cases just wrenched it away from other people, you know, and all, yeah. all these books have something to do with that in some way. So, yeah, you know, I think that I think that quote is is very apt. Yeah. It's good that yeah. you found it. Yeah. And I thought it would be, you know, just to just to dive right into it. You know, we were I think the first writer that we both wanted to touch on was Cormac McCarthy. Not that mm -hmm. not we're not going in chronological order or anything like that. But certainly when you think of his maybe his magnum opus and certainly his biggest and largest and most well-known Western blood Meridian, you know, has a lot to do in, in spirit, if not letter to what, you know, Slotkin is getting at there. And um, so, yeah, I, I thought that would be kind of a nice way to, we can segue sort of, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Cormac McCarthy's work. So why don't we, why don't we go ahead and do that? Okay. You want me to take the lead? Yeah. Okay, yeah, because I think you're going to talk about, you know, maybe a couple of Cormac McCarthy's other books. I wanted to at least mention Blood Meridian uh, in, in this episode, and, and I won't do it at length because I, I actually covered that book. It, was, it, was go, go, it goes all the way back to the first episode we ever did, John, about the books that made us. Yeah, that's and right. One of the novels that made me was Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. But I, I just I, I, I was trying to think of what I wanted to say just in a pithy way. 
you know, uh, before handing it over to you, because I know you wanted to bring up a couple of his books that we haven't mentioned quite as much. But McCarthy's one of my favorite writers. He's one of my kind of literary heroes. So some people really can't stand his style. He writes in kind of this uh, almost biblical, you know, um, very um, uh, uh, like strong and obscure vocabulary and kind of a flowing nature, you know, uh, without uh, punctuation in a lot of cases. And it's very some the knock on it is that it's really highfalutin. But yeah. all I really want to say is that I, I, I want to just say to listeners that, you know, for me personally, kind of the ultimate Western novel is Blood Meridian. It's this epic book he wrote. He published in the 80s. It came out in obscurity, but it's since become kind of a acknowledged American classic. It is the bloodiest book I have ever read in my entire life, which I said uh, in, back in episode one. Um, so you have to have a, this is a book you need a strong stomach for, for sure. And it's it's about this young boy that joins a, a gang, a, a notorious gang of just like, you know, criminals and wrestlers who are pushing westward and, and, and fighting against Indians and basically anybody, essentially. But it's kind of a metaphor for the, what this nation did in pushing westward and kind of taking over all the land and stuff. And as a, out of necessity, it's an extremely bloody, violent book, but it ends up becoming not just a meditation on you know, violence and westward expansion of America, but all of mankind and, you know, our capacity for evil. And, um, and it just has it, the profundity of the book rises, you know, more and more, the more I've, I think I've read it four times, maybe three times. And I'll, I'll certainly read it again. Um, but it's, it's for me kind of the ultimate statement about, you know, both the amazing landscape and the incredible cost of what we did to kind of, you know, go across America and kind of take over all the land and rent it away from other people, you know, so I'll, I'll leave it there, but that's just one of my favorite books in general and definitely like the towering Western novel in my personal literary canon. So. Yeah. And a, and a very uncompromising one and the brutal one, you know, I think, I think uh, just a couple extra comments, like I know you're aware of this, but just to let our listeners know, some may be aware of this, some may not, that, you know, Blood Meridian, which has a sub interesting subtitle of, or or I think it's, or the evening, what is it, the evening redness in the West? Right. Yeah, which again, kind of evo evokes blood and bloodshed, um, but there's also another iconic kind of image of the West with the, you know, the sunset, literally riding into the sunset, but uh, very often the sunset was a bloody one and certainly is in, in, in McCarthy's book. <laughs> That's for sure. But yeah. his book was loosely based on a, on an actual account, uh, a nonfiction account that was written by somebody named Samuel, Samuel Chamberlain. In the, and it was a book called my confession. I actually have that book and it's kind wow. of a, it's kind of a um, memoir before memoirs were, you know, what they are today, but of, of, uh, an American soldier, he's called a hero, but he's a soldier in kind of recounting all of his, you know, personal adventures, you know, bo both before and during and after the Mexican War. So all around kind of the southwest of the United States. And um, so a lot of the like bloodshed and the scalping and kind of like uh, murdering of Mexican and, and Native Americans that you see in the book uh was real you know it's, this is obviously this is stuff that really happened but there was a i think in the book you mentioned you know there's a gang called the glanton gang 
that's based on a, a real gang of sort of criminals, essentially, you know, that, that went around and among other things are, you know, murdering, murdering natives of the land, you know, just kind of almost for sport, you know? So, um, but so McCarthy doesn't compromise on that at all. And, and, and blood Meridian, I don't, it's like the opposite of some of what I was talking about before. I don't think it was written in any way to try to, you know, uh, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like, uh, mythologize or add grandeur to the kind of the, the myths around the West. It was more kind of like saying, well, this is the way it really was. It was a lot more brutal and uncompromising and unforgiving than, you know, the, the classic Western movies, you know, have pictured. But right. um, I think McCarthy, you got to talk a little bit more about, because he's got a whole trilogy of books called the Border Trilogy, which are also you know, quote unquote, Western novels. And again, it, they're set in the same region of the country. They're set kind of, um, you know, that's why it's called the border trilogy. It's set along the border between the United States and Mexico. Part of it is in Texas. I think the first volume, All the Pretty Horses, which, you know, is one of his most well-known books, set along the Texas-Mexico border. But some of the books kind of move further west into Arizona, I believe. Um, but it's a trilogy of, of novels that kind of focuses on these two, two different young characters. Their lives intertwine in certain respects, but he sort of follows both of their stories. And it, they're kind of just sort of sprawling, very meditative, you know, kind of reflections on what life was like, you know, even though these, and the interesting thing is these, you know, I'd forgotten this, but these stories were set in the, in the 20th century, you know, mm -hmm. 1930s, 1950s even. But they hearken back to, you know, older times and kind of older themes in the American West. And I guess, you know, they indicate in a way how some of the some of these lifestyles and themes have lingered and endured. Um, but he's clearly playing around again, like he does with Blood Meridian. He's sort of playing around with the, uh, you know, the myths and the cliches. But he's also trying to. Um, give it more weight and give it more realism and, and more emotion. I guess you, you, you might, it's been a while since I read the border trilogy, but I think you could say they're among his most emotional books. There's a love story in the first one. Um, and there's actually a love story in the third one, which is good. The books are called uh, all the pretty horses. Second volume is the crossing. Third volume is called cities of the plain. And there's another kind of, and this one is more of a doomed love story between one of the lead characters and a, and a, I believe a Mexican prostitute. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, it's Cormac McCarthy, so it doesn't end well. <laughs> and <laughs> that book, by the way, ends up with what I would consider to be the mother of all literary knife fights. I mean, there, <laughs> and I mentioned, you know, in Warlock, by the way, I, me, I wanted to mention to you, there's a, there's a rather bloody knife fight. This book gets bloody too. And, um, you know, because it's longer, it kind of, you know, it goes in a lot of different directions and there's a knife fight in it that had me thinking of the end of cities of the plain by Cormac McCarthy, but that is the end of cities of the plain. I've, you mentioned the violence of blood Meridian. I've, I've never read a more violent depiction of a knife fight, not even close. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it, it ends if you, if you, if you, you're not scared of violence or, you know, it ends with an absolute whopper. Um, but I, the writing in these books, Blood Meridian and the Border Trilogy, uh, is really, that's really the standout. I agree with you. Some people, some people may think it's 
highfalutin, but I, you know, it's really sort of meditative, philosophical. And I think his descriptions of the American West are, are incredibly beautiful. And like you say, almost biblical. So they're all high recommendations from us. And I'll just mention, we don't really have time, but um, I wanted to, one of the books I would recommend too is, is called No Country for Old Men, which has been really, was a pretty well-known book, but it's made, been made much more famous because of the Coen Brothers movie. But there's an, I'll just mention that book as an interesting example of a book that's set in much more contemporary times, but there are constant throwbacks to older Western themes. And the book is narrated by, by a sheriff from a Texas, of a Texas town who's, who's accounting and kind of telling us about these um, drug-related killings. But he constantly go, he says, actually, literally in the book, he says, you know, it's hard for somebody in my position not to compare yourself to the men, uh, the sheriffs of older times. And he's and one of the main themes of the book is kind of looking back to the men who preceded you and kind of the men who, uh, you know, moved out to the West and kind of built law and order with their own hands. And, you know, whether this lead character, Sheriff Tom Bell, you know, wrestles with Ed Tom Bell, I think, you know, yeah. wrestles with uh, whether he, you know, is worthy of kind of that lineage. And it's, it's a really, it's, it's, it's a really interesting example of a book that's set in more modern times, but really could easily be called a Western, even though it has to do with, you know, automatic guns and drugs and briefcases full of money. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think there's uh, I'm sorry, you're still talking. No, no, that that's, that's the end of that little diatribe. Okay, because I, I was going to make a comment about or two about the Border Trilogy also, but you're right. I think there's kind of a through line that you could take through even Blood Meridian and all the Border Crossing books and all, all the way to No Country for Old Men. Um, and those were, by the way, chrono chronological. So Blood Meridian was first and then the Border Trilogy books and then No Country for Old Men came later as McCarthy was advancing in, in age himself. But there is a true line of the, some of those Western themes uh, through line, sorry, of some of those Western themes. And you're right, like the, the same themes exist even in the, the much more modern story of No Country for Old Men because those things are kind of still resonant and lingering in all the areas that Ed Tom is kind of moving around in the latter book. But just on the border trail, it's kind of interesting because um, Cormac McCarthy, just real quick, was like sort of a, a extremely dark and brutal writer through all of his work and, and also very under the radar all the way up through Blood Meridian. But the next book after Blood Meridian, which was published in the mid 80s, was All the Pretty Horses. And that book kind of, you're right. I think, you know, in a way, it's interesting because those books were kind of a little bit of a, I don't want to say softening because they still have the brutal violence, but it, uh, uh, they were definitely more emotional. Like you said, I would even call them quasi romances almost, you yeah. know, at least the first and the third. And it sort of represented this a little bit of an, for Cor by Cormac McCarthy's standards, a little bit of an opening up of him, the writer, and sort of the themes became more broad. And, and it was, it ended up being a great career move because uh, All the Pretty Horses won the National Book Award, you know, um, and so it drew him into another level of kind of like acclaim. And then, you know, I like the way you described all three of the books. It's just got those two characters and there are romances in them, but there's also the violence. And then I, I just want to add for anybody who might consider reading them at the very end after that Mother of All Night Fights. And I remember that well, too. I think I've read that book twice, I think. 
and it is a hell of a knife fight. But after that, there's a, you know, not to give anything away, but the book jumps forward at the very end of the entire trilogy. And there's an unbelievable final sequence with one of the, I'll say one of the two characters has grown old, has survived and grown old. And he's just wandering, which will be a theme of some of the other books we talk about. And he runs into kind of basically like a homeless old man, stranger. He gets into this philosophical conversation with him about basically what are we doing here and what's this all about? And it's oh, yeah. an unbelievable coda to the whole trilogy and that worth it alone for people to check out. So I just wanted to mention that. That's great. I forgot about that, but you're right. That, that there is a very powerful thing that takes kind of a turn that you don't really see coming. And then, yeah. you know, we could talk this entire episode about Cormac McCarthy. I, I do want to mention one more thing just because uh, this would have been a great mention during our, you know, four or five episodes back, our animal themed episode. Uh, because the first half of the crossing is 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 part of what I really remember from the from the trilogy, and in which one of the characters is I think he finds like either a lost or a wounded wolf, and he's trying to get it back to its homeland. Or I, I you know the the details are a little blurry, but it's him basically tracking. I think it's a wounded wolf, and it's this beautiful kind of like you know meditation on the land and you know it's very you know not not a lot of dialogue but just him sort of tracking this wolf is a really beautiful and poetic part of that whole trilogy and i i never forgot it so i i think it's worth mentioning that kind of relationship you know in in quotes you know that he forms with this wolf kind of out in the middle of nowhere is a really sort of touching and interesting part of that whole trilogy yeah, in a way, it's kind of the grandfather to uh, that book by Daniel Hornsby, the Via Negativa, where the priest is, uh, you know, yeah. escorting the wounded coyote. It's a, it's a little bit like that, you know, although that, that book is uh, milder than Cormac McCarthy's book. But yeah, that that wolf is a is is an extremely significant character in the second book and, you know, sort of is a stand in for, you know, the way McCarthy writes about the natural world and and animals as well, horses, you know, et cetera. Right. And it, it can't help anybody sort of of our age and our generation. You can't help think of the wolf two socks from the movie Dances with Wolves, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it comes in every now and then, but he becomes this really kind of poignant and, you know, heartfelt character in that movie. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I know you had other books that you wanted to move on to. Why don't we move on to another one that you want to touch on? Yeah. And, I, you know, I, we say this every time, but I can I can try to go through them quick. I do. I have four of them, you know, so. And I made a few notes to help guide myself so I so I don't say much. So I'll try. Um, and it was interesting to try to choose these, you know, I because I, it's so vast. But I yeah. I, I went for books that um, I, I think would be a little more obscure for perhaps some of the people that are listening. I don't know. But really, only one of mine is actually kind of a classic Western. Um, and then when I did, John, is I kind of realized that I, I had four titles I wanted to talk about and I arranged them. Uh, geographically just for fun so now i'm not talking about chronologically like when they came out or the time period i'm actually going from the easternmost setting uh to the west coast cool so, okay. yeah just for fun you know so the first book i want to talk about is um called giant and it is a, a somewhat obscure book now it was written by a woman named edna ferber and it was published in 1952. And if anybody's heard of the book Giant, um, 
you know, perhaps more people would have heard of the film Giant, which came out in 1956 and is noted as a film, but it's also noted for being the, the final role of the actor James Dean, who ended okay. up getting killed in a car accident. Um, but I chose this one f- for a couple of reasons. I read it not too long ago. Uh, I have to say, uh, this is just a personal thing for me. I, I don't talk a lot. <laughs> And I feel like I, perhaps I don't talk enough about books that are written by women or that have to do with women. And so I'm not saying that I chose it you know, necessarily for this reason, but I, I do think it was an interesting book. to. I do think it is an interesting book to point out because it, it's told from the point of view of a female character. So, but it's also very interesting and uh, an original book. It really was kind of eye-opening for me. Edna Ferber was just kind of like a literary figure who had uh, lots of novels, but she became famous in the 20s for winning the Pulitzer Prize for a novel called So Big. And I, I don't really know what that book is about. Um, but so, so she'd already won a Pulitzer Prize. And the book Giant is about Texas. And and I, oh, I wanted to mention this before, but I have very little personal experience with the West. In fact, my only trips to the West have been to Southern California, and I made two trips to Seattle, Washington. Um, and all of them had to do with either business or military work. So I've never actually made a pleasure trip to the West. <laughs> and when I say the West, I'm talking about anything West of St. Louis. So, and yeah. I know that's different, John. We've talked about it. You have uh, considerably more experience in the West than me. So, um, you know, so I don't have a lot of personal experience of the land or the way it looks or anything like that. And I've never been to Texas in my entire life. I've always wanted to go. Zion is set in Texas, and it's basically about a woman who is the daughter of a sort of stuffy rich doctor in Virginia who meets and falls with lo- in love with a cattle rancher with the name of Bick Benedict from Texas, like the <laughs> Dallas region of Texas, the heart of Texas. And the book is about Texas and the, the mores and morals and the way of life um, in the state of Texas from the point of view of somebody coming in from the outside and trying to integrate her way into it. And you can imagine, you know, some of the ups and downs um, for a woman in the middle of the 20th century. So she marries this Texas rancher book opens with her kind of traveling out to Texas and they go immediately to this big soiree of a huge uh, oil baron. I think of him as like a Jerry Jones type, the guy that owns the Dallas Cowboys (laughs) Uh, with the memorable name of jet rink. (laughs) <laughs> and so the, the and I'm not going to go through the plot, but the, the book starts with them going to this huge party at a lavish mansion in the middle of Texas. And it's like a fish out of water story. And I found it really illuminating because it, it just goes through uh, essentially their marriage over several decades. Um, this cattle rancher and this woman from Virginia. And, and, you know, as you can imagine, it's not always smooth. And the woman is headstrong. She has some ideas about. um and perhaps headstrong is even a condescending word. She's a, she's confident and has her own ideas. Let's put it that way. And um, she tries to ingratiate herself to, from, from the East Coast into Texas life, and it's very difficult. You know, and this book caused a, a great uh, scandal in the country, particularly in Texas, because it exposed a lot of their way of life and the way they do things, especially having to do with the, the female character in the story, the more she ingratiates herself into this ranch lifestyle, she starts moving around on her own and gets to know people like uh, vaqueros, which are Mexican cowboys, and yeah. uh, like hired help that are from Mexico. So again, it's the 
that border theme and she sees the way that they're treated and she's angry, you know, so she becomes kind of this defender of, you know, these people who are overlooked by people in Texas and the, the caste system and the way things are always being the way they are because it's Texas and they do things the way they do it. And then nobody can tell them to do things any different, you know? Right. right. And so I'm, I'm just going to leave it there to, to this day. I'm, I'm sorry. Say that again. To this day, don't don't mess with Texas. Yeah, gonna, like the one thing that I wanted to say is that much. it's yeah, like I I again I, I'm ignorant of Texas, so I don't want to speak out of turn about you know because I'm sure it's a very complicated place, you know. Right. But you know you can't help but hear and then you know even all the way up to this recent law that they passed and said Texas does things their own way. I think that's fair to. So this novel is about that, but it's told from the point of view of a confident and strong female character in the middle of the 20th century who finds herself there and has to make her way. And I, I highly recommend it. It was illuminating to me and it's just kind of like a good story and it has tons of details about the landscape and the, the ranching way of life, et cetera. So that's my first one. Yeah. And um, yeah, Texas, I mean, we're talking about a state, I believe the only state that ever made a serious run to trying to like, basically secede and form their own country just that for their own state, you know, yeah. and they weren't joking either. So that's, that's the history of Texas, you know? So, you know, yeah, it's kind of, but I think that's a really uh, interesting pick and I'm, I, I think it's a great one. I'm glad you brought it up because among many other things, it sort of touches on something we should at least mention the treatment of women in a lot of Western novels, quote unquote, Western novels can be really, one dimensional and also, you know, painting broadly with a very broad brush, it's sort of been given short shrift, you know, by a lot of the men who have written about the West. And there's, you know, you tend to see either they're painted as sort of angelic figures who move into town and try to civilize it and, you know, bring some uh, beauty to a Western town, or they're like, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, <laughs> I hate to use crude, like painted whores, you know, like, like, yeah. and it's just, you know, these sort of characters, you know, either one or the other, but uh, that's, so that's a great example of, of, you know, uh, of, of relatively rare, you know, Western that's written from the point of view or, you know, features a female character trying to make her own way in a different culture uh, in Texas. So I think that's a great pick for that reason. I mean, man, there's there. I have so many books that I, I wanted to at least mention, but I, you know, I, I thought I want to at least mention, you know, that there there are, you know, there's a long there's a long history of this type of writing in America, stretches all the way back. You know, one of the earliest writers that really, in some ways, you don't think of as a Western writer, but I think is really the the kind of the ancestor and kind of granddaddy of all Western writing would be James Fenimore Cooper. So mm -hmm. he. When he was writing, and this is going back into the you know uh, 18th century, right? Um, or it might be the early part of the 19th, but he was writing about the 18th century for sure. Yeah. But when he was writing, the West, quote unquote, was like New York State and like North Carolina. Yeah. And uh, I haven't read a lot of his stuff, but I've always been sort of intrigued because you know he was he, he really is like the like the great granddaddy of this entire genre it has to be mentioned as such because he wrote a number of books about uh, characters that went out into the frontier which again at that point was still in the west uh, the east half of the country trying to make their way and it was very rough 
land. You know, most people are aware of him because of Alaska Mohicans. Um, he has, has a whole series of books. You know, the Deer Slay. I think the Deer Slayer is one of them. Or it might be, the, you know, I might be getting that title wrong. But I thought he should be mentioned. And then uh, there is another book that I have read that was written all the way back in 1902 that is often cited as kind of like, you know, the beginning of the Western, quote, unquote, Western genre as we know it. And that's a book called The Virginian, uh, written by a man named Owen Wister. And he, hmm. he was from the East Coast. So, again, you know, kind of starting on the East Coast. But he wrote this, you know, iconic story about uh, somebody, a Virginian, somebody from Virginia who moves out to the West. And um, I don't remember a ton about this novel, but it literally, it has all the archetypes. There's this kind of lone cowboy who comes riding into a very, you know, um, uh, remote town in the middle of the West. He sets up, you know, a ranch there and tries to make a go of it. He meets a woman there who's been widowed. And uh, she's been plagued by cattle rustlers, you know, so he tries to help her out by, and the cattle rustlers are, are led by a guy who's like just a quintessential Western stock villain, probably wears a black hat, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, whole, it's like the whole story, but this is all the way back. In, and then there's a, you know, a showdown at the end with a gunfight. I mean, it's all the things that you would recognize, but this is all the way going back to 1902. And it's really kind of known as the, as the story that kind of, you know, entrench some of those, you know, iconic characters and, and themes. So uh, I do remember reading it and I remember it being sort of a, a slow moving book. And uh, I think it was more valuable to me as, you know, what it, as a sort of a progenitor for all the Western books and movies that I'd seen more than anything else, but I thought it was worth mentioning. And then, yeah, it's uh, a good one. you know, there's so many writers that we're not going to, get to that are sort of legends in this genre you know i read one book by zane gray who has you know dozens and dozens of western novels probably his most famous is called riders on the purple sage which is the book that i read i honestly don't remember a damn thing from it so <laughs> i guess zane gray didn't really stand out to me as someone who really struck a chord but you know is worth mentioning um and then of course there's larry mcmurtry who a little bit you know, a little bit later, who you and I have talked about this and might as well mention it, you know, in the in the podcast that he's someone he has. He's very well known for Lonesome Dove, Comanche Moon, The Last Picture Show, which is an excellent movie. You know, a, a lot of these have been made into excellent movies, um, but neither of us have ever read a, a page of Larry McMurtry, I think. Right. Yeah, no, I haven't. I've always meant to read at least Lonesome Dove, which is the beginning of a whole saga. And it won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, but no, I've never read them. I did not. I'm glad you mentioned that because Lonesome Dove is, you know, we've all heard of Lonesome Dove. But I did not realize it was the beginning of a tetralogy. There's actually four books in that saga, which you probably knew, but I didn't realize there were that many. Comanche yeah. Moon is one of them. But um, anyway, all that is to say that, you know, Larry McMurtry could well be somebody that we decide to we've been toying around with this i'm sorry to mention this on air on air here dude but might as well you know yeah, why not <laughs> around with this idea of, of having occasional episodes that are quote-unquote discovery episodes where we dig into a writer that neither of us have ever read so larry mcmurtry would be a really strong candidate for both of us because he is so you know sort of iconic in this genre and um you know i've seen the lonesome dove miniseries of Tommy Lee Jones and 
I can't remember who the other actor is, but another famous actor, uh, Robert Duvall, I think. Um, anyway, uh, Larry McMurtry, we can't possibly continue on this show without mentioning him. Um, are you still with me? I am. Yeah. Okay. So those are a couple older writers I want to at least mention, even though we can't get into all their work. And there are many others too. Um, Elmore Leonard is known as a crime writer, but he, he kind of made his way in the early part of his career, wrote many, many, you know, uh, celebrated Western stories. He wrote a novel called Ombre that was made into a Western film. So yeah, there are all kinds of others. But um, one, I'll tell you what, why don't we take a quick break and then we'll come back and then I'll bring up another novel that you and I can discuss a little bit because we've both read it. Okay. Sounds good. All right. I'll come back in a second. All right, Jude, you with me? Right on. Hey, okay, so there's another book that I know you read very recently. I don't think it was on your list to discuss, but I did want to bring it up because I've read it too, and I think it's good enough to merit mention. And that's a book called The Oxbow Incident by Walter Van Tilburg Clark. And it's another older, uh, kind of mid-century. It's interesting, we featured at least three sort of mid-century, mid-20th century Western novels with uh, Giant, Warlock, and now uh, The Oxbow Incident. Um, but, you know, I just, I wanted to bring it up because I remember reading that book several years ago. As you know, it made an impression on me. To me, that's one of the best, better Western novels that I've read. And it, it sets, it's going to sound kind of familiar. It sets up a situation where, um, well, you could probably summarize the plot a little bit better than I could. Uh, do you want to just really quickly try to take a shot at what the Oxbow incident is about? And then I wanted to, um, there's a quote from an essay I wanted to read about it because I think it kind of shed some light on, on uh, this genre in general and why that's such a good book. Okay, yeah. And, uh, um, so it's about these two kind of wandering uh, guns for hire, let's say. And a lot of it is sort of, sort of cliched Western material, but it was actually published in 1940. So it was like right in the, you know, sort of the sweet spot genre. So these guys ride into a town in the West. It's uh, I don't even remember if it's really specified exactly where it is. It mm -hmm. might be, but, but it's sort of doesn't matter. Um, in kind of the, you know, the Wild West region. And they, you know, literally wander into the saloon. They start to hear about basically these these uh, rustlers have come through a gang of thieves and stolen somebody's cattle in the area. And uh, some people start to wander into the bar and talk about just sort of whipping up a posse, you know, basically to go out yeah. and go after these guys that stole the cattle. And these two fellas that are sort of, you know, one of them is narrating the story, decide to join in. And then there's uh, in the saloon, the first part of the novel, there's a bunch of debate as to how they should handle the matter, you know, whether they should go after them at all or whether they should capture them a lot, you know, bring them dead, bring them back dead, bring them back alive, etc. Some people are in favor of like, you know, the that the crime is unforgivable. They should just hunt them down and kill them. And some people think they should be brought back and brought to trial. And then the second half of the book is them actually embarking on this chase for this group of thieves and then finding them in this area a small valley called Oxbow, you know? And so when they find them the rest of the, 
novel unfolds and it becomes this, you know, story about basically mob justice, you know, so. Right. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for doing that. I, I put you on the spot there, but you did a great job. And, and the reason I wanted to highlight this book, I thought this is a very uh, um, interesting book from a moral perspective. It's, 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 it's almost like something like 12 Angry Men, or it's a story that kind of presents, you know, in familiar sort of Western trappings, a very interesting moral dilemma that touches on, as you said, questions of justice, questions of responsibility, you know, even the ethics of, of you know, killing somebody for a crime. And, uh, you know, I think it really posits a lot of very interesting moral questions. And um, there's an excellent essay in a book by another great American Western writer named Wallace Stegner. I mentioned this book to you in, in passing called, in, he's got a collection of essays about living and writing in the West. And the book is called Where the Bluebird, Where the Bluebird Sings to the Lemonade Springs, which is a quote from that, you know, famous Western song, The Big Rock Candy Mountain. Mm-hmm. But he had a really int- I, forgot, I forgot that he has a really interesting essay, you know, a full essay about uh, Walter Van Tilburg Clark, in which he talks quite a bit about, you know, what he's about in this book, The Oxbow Incident. Um, so I thought I would just read a little passage from it because it just touches on some of the things we've been talking about. But uh, And they were sort of contemporaries. They knew each other. And so Wallace Stegner is reflecting on, you know, Walter Clark. But he, he says this about, the, about his work. He says, you know, almost as much as Walter did, I, I grew to hate the profane Western culture the profane Western culture, the economics and psychology of a rapacious society. I disliked it as reality. And this is Stegner, by the way, right? He is a Western writer. So he's writing from the viewpoint of someone who's lived his whole life and written about the West. I disliked it as reality. And I distrusted it when it elevated itself into the Western myths that aggrandized arrogance, machismo, vigilante or sidearm justice, and the oversimplified good guy, bad guy moralities invented mainly by East Coast dudes fascinated by the romantic figure of the horseman and happily appropriated by a lot of horsemen and sidearm Galahads as self-justification. Those myths have made an impervious shield for all kinds of Westerners, drugstore as well as authentic cowboys in the dangerous wilderness of moral irresponsibility. And I, I thought that was really well expressed, first of all, you know, as only a, a, a great writer like Wallace Stegner can. Um, but I thought it also, you know, what I'm trying to say about the Oxbow incident is that, it, you know, it's not just trafficking in cliches and kind of romanticizing. It's really trying to dig down into, you know, kind of the morality of, of living in the West at that time and, and how, you know, when you take law into your own hands, and, you know, embrace something like vigilante justice and, you know, grab for more land or whatever it is they may try to do. You know, this has this has reverberations outward and impacts the people you live with and society as a whole. And, and you know, many people have argued that this mentality that is often expressed in, in Western movies and novels, you know, is even like made its way into like U.S. foreign policy, for example. It's like, you know. Like we just expand and take what we want. So it has many reverberations, but I wanted to mention the Oxbow incident because I think it's a, it's not just a, a root and toot and Western. It's actually a complex moral story that is uh, worth looking up, I think. 
Yeah, definitely. Like it has it has resonance through, you know, the rest of American history for sure. I mean, you could draw a line through for the Oxbow incident, even to like the Iraq war, you know, exactly. or like yeah. W. Bush saying, you know, like these guys did this to us on, you know, this this anniversary we're talking about right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to hunt after them and spring them up. And I'm not knocking President Bush or the people that made those decisions. I mean, I, I you know, that that's another matter, you know, but that's just that's, you know, part of the fabric of America has led into that kind of response, you know, when a, when a crime is enacted, you know, and et cetera. So the, the themes yeah. are relevant, you know, to this country, you know, all the way down the line to the present day. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to bring that one up, but I'll, I'll kick it back to you. What, what's another book you wanted to discuss? Well, it's interesting. I can make an interesting transition here, John, because, uh, so Wallace Stegner was a very highly regarded uh, Western writer. I, I, I just going to mention one of his books because it could have come up in actually episode 35 big books. The one book I read by him is a big novel f- set in the West called angle of repose. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the book I'm going to talk about, um, but he was, um, I, I decided not to talk about that book today because I can't really remember it very well, <laughs> but it was a big Western novel, but Wallace Stegner was a very highly regarded Western writer, as you pointed out. And he was so well regarded that they uh, one of the most famous literary fellowships in the country is called the Wallace Stegner Fellowship. And it's at Stanford University. It's like a grant that you give to a one writer of fiction. Um, and it still exists today. But one of the earlier recipients of the Wallace Stegner Fellowship was a guy named Ron Hansen. Um, and it might even been for the writing of the book that I want to bring up today. I'm not sure of the timing, but Ron Hansen, I've mentioned thousands of times because he's yep. one of my favorite novelists and he's the author of Marietta and ecstasy, which is about this nun and the turn of the 20th century. But Ron Hansen, what I want to bring up today is, is actually his debut novel because Ron Hansen's from Nebraska and he grew up steeped in Western literature and his first two novels were Westerns. And the, the more famous one came out in the eighties because it was made into a film called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, one of the longest titles I've ever encountered. The book I want to talk about today is Ron Hansen's first novel, which was published in 1979, and it was called Desperados. And it's the the one book I want to mention that's kind of the most in keeping with the cowboy Western themes, you know. Um, And this is just a very... Uh, impressive debut novel. He actually could have brought it up in uh, our, our tale about debut novels, um, our episode about de- debut novels back uh, back a ways, but I didn't. Um, and what it is, is it's a fictional memoir. So you talked about the Gal- Glanton gang and uh, the Blood Meridian, but there was a, another historical gang called the Dalton gang. In fact, I'm not sure if the Glanton gang, no, I think the Glanton gang was a real thing too. But there was a, a band of, again, rustlers, thieves, you know, ne'er-do-wells called the Dalton Gang in the middle of the country. So, again, pushing out from Texas, this is actually only just a little bit further west and more to the north. But this was actually set in the Nebraska, Kansas area. Can you still hear me? Yep. Okay. And uh, it's written as a, a memoir. Um, that this guy is writing in the 1930s. His name is Emmett Dalton, and he was the head of this 
Dalton gang that actually existed in real life. And one of the notable things about Desperados is it's almost like sort of a fact fiction novel. Like it's a historical novel that has a lot of factual information in it. Um, and basically the ki- this, this band of thieves, the Dalton gang kind of rolls around Kansas, Nebraska and like the Great Plains, just kind of robbing trains and that kind of thing, kind of classic Western stuff. And the, the novel is told all in retrospect because this guy's writing his memoirs in the 30s. And it begins with the murder of his brother named Frank. And um, basically tells the story of kind of the, the heyday of the Dalton gang and uh, how this guy, Emmett Dalton, leads this gang around. And he's, a, you know, they're perpetrating crimes kind of all over the place. But what they're really trying to do is to avenge the death of his brother, Frank. And it's just kind of a historical novel set in that time frame. And it's just sort of the, the, the adventures of this gang. But um, it's very beautifully written. It's very cinematic and impressive. And the other thing that I just wanted to bring up about Desperados, John, is that you talked about the mother, the mother of all knife fights in the cities of the plain from Cormac McCarthy's border trilogy. Um, yeah. It would be hard to, you know, in the, in the Western genre, it would be hard to call it anything the mother of all gunfights, you know, because uh, they're, you know, there's uh, uh, probably a big field of gunfights in Western literature, I would imagine. Right. There's but, so many. Yeah. Right. But Desperados ends with a gigantic gunfight. Um, <laughs> that's the climax of the book with when the Dalton gang attempts to rob two banks at once in Coffeyville, Kansas, 1892. Nice. And that it's actually Desperados is actually a slow book for like the first half of it, but much of the second half is this gigantic standoff, you know, like so many Western movies and stuff. But it, as a debut, it was so impressively written and staged, and it and it goes on forever, and it's written in such this in in such a vivid um, cinematic style by this debut novelist Ron Hansen that it's like it's like watching a a movie a great Western shootout movie in your mind. Um, but, you know, in, in the form of a novel. So that's like, to me, that's like a, almost a higher form of enjoyment than like, you know, because it gets to play out in your own brain. But I just, I just love the end of the book. It's, it, it was, it was a, one of these things where, you know, you sort it sort of builds up slowly, but the end really pays off. And it's just, if you like that kind of thing, and if you're into the, the really the gunslinging parts of the West, Desperados is a book that you should search out. It's still out there and it's a really good debut novel. So yeah, that great recommendation. I mean, Ron Hansen, you know, it, it's nice to have him come up and cause you've mentioned Marriott and ecstasy so many times. It's nice to have him come up and, and, and in this context and discuss another one of his books. He's got a lot of excellent books and he's really, as you know, he's really adept at, you know, research and translating his research into very finely wrought, detailed uh, portrayals of whatever time or place he's writing about. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote that great book that described the, uh, the the sinking of a of a ship that had German nuns on it, which was the inspiration for the Hopkins poem, "The Wreck of the Deutschland." But mm-hmm. I remember immersive. You know, he really takes you onto that ship, and you know, the sinking of that ship goes on for this whole second half of the book and it's really incredibly immersive. So I haven't read Desperados, but I'm sure it's really, it's really, uh, I have read the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. So I know how he, 
how detailed he gets. And yes, it can be a little bit dense, but it's well worth it with him. And uh, so I'm glad you brought that one up. Um, always happy to mention Ron Hansen on the show. Yeah, that's true. So we'll keep moving. I, I do, you know, you brought up a, a, a woman writer before. I, there are two women that I wanted to mention. One I'm not going to talk much about because she's come up a number of times um, in recent episodes. And that's Annie Pruel or Prue, actually, I heard is the correct pronunciation. I think I've been mangling it for a few episodes now. Mm. But I don't think you mentioned the, I don't, I think the L is silent, <laughs> like Django, you know, <laughs> like to, to bring yeah. it back to Western, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but Annie Prue, I think is how you say it. But anyway, um, we've mentioned a number of times her Wyoming stories. Just, I just happened, I didn't plan this at all, but I happened to be, you can't see me, but I'm wearing my Wyoming state flag t-shirt today so that's a little shout out to annie prue who apparently lives there but i won't i won't go into those again i've already highly recommended those three volumes of her wyoming stories but many of them are many of them are contemporary but some of them also go back in time and kind of describe characters that have moved out to wyoming and i mean as I've said, I've spent some time in Wyoming. Wyoming is a pretty desolate and wide open place now. I cannot imagine what it would have been like, how unforgiving and how difficult it would have been to scratch out a, a living out there in the in the uh, 19th century. That's like incomprehensible because it's pretty unforgiving now. I can tell you that. Even driving <laughs> on the roads in Wyoming is is can be a harrowing experience, and I'm not kidding. So, so. Uh, yeah, so that's those, you know, her work is highly, highly recommended. But we can't have this discussion without one of the absolute pioneers, uh, not only of pioneers, <laughs> kind of a bad pun, not only of <laughs> writing in a way, but of all American literature, and that's Willa Cather. Yeah. She is one of the true great American writers about people moving west and living out west. And it's interesting because she spent a lot of her career, I don't know if it was her whole career, but she spent a lot of her career in New York City. You know, she is not a Westerner, I don't think. I should have done more homework. But uh, yet she has, you know, become a part of the American canon for books like My Antonia, Oh Pioneers, and the book I really want to highlight and recommend, recommend, which is Death Comes for the Archbishop. Now, this is not at all, and you've read this book too, and I know you're a big fan. Um, yeah. I, I thought we had to kick it around just a little bit. This is not at all a typical, quote-unquote, Western like what we've been talking about. It's, no. it's a novel that's set West, and it has to do with, with people who move out to kind of more remote Western areas. In this case, they happen to be missionary priests, and this is the story of one of the missionary priests who, who lives out in uh, New Mexico, and he kind of ministers to a to a wide <laughs> geographic area, and including many Native American peoples. And it's been a long time since I read it, so I don't, you know, I'm not going to recount the plot because I don't remember it that well. But I do remember how fascinating this character was, this priest um, who's ministering to such a wide open area, and there's so many cultural nuances um, that among his flock. And the way that he interacts with not only the people, but the, the culture and the, um, you know, religion of Native American peoples. It's absolutely fascinating. I think it's a, again, I hate to use this word, but kind of a pioneering book in terms of taking us into an area of the country that a lot of Americans would have known nothing about. 
and imagining what it would have been like to, you know, the bravery, the courage, you know, the determination to go out to New Mexico and minister to those people there. Uh, it's just a really, and it, and it kind of chronicles, you know, the, the difficulties and hardships of his life as he does so. Um, my memories of it are kind of fuzzy, so I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. You may have a comment or two about it, but that's one of the great, Willa Cather is one of the great writers uh, who writes about the American West. I think that's indisputable. You know, the, I, I still haven't read some of her books like O Pioneers or My Antonia, but every book I, of hers I've read, I found to be uh, perhaps surprisingly rich. And uh, I don't want to go through this episode without mentioning Willa Cather. Yeah, that's a great mention. I, I, I've only read one book by her, Death Comes from the Archbishop, and I read it not too long ago. I think it was last year. But uh, definitely, definitely a good, a great idea to mention her. Um, that's the kind of book. So my my memories of that book again. I, I read it more recently, and it, it's a it's a fairly you know well it's not simple. The life is not simple, but it's a fairly simple story in terms of what it's relating. It's just a story about this priest who goes out to the west and tries to just the the whole novel is about his struggle to minister to these people whose culture and beliefs. And everything about the way they live is so different from his, but he has such a, he has this faithful devotion to his creed. So the story is about him just remaining faithful to that creed against all the challenges that come up, you know, inherent to that situation. But mm -hmm. what I want to say about that book just really quick is that it, it just, I thought that book was magnificently written. Um, it was yeah. just, it had very lyrical and beautiful prose, but it was also very, um, it was not purple. You know, it was, not, it was all, it was all in the service of the story. It was very uh, sort of matter of fact and um, just, you know, uh, functional is too weak a word, but it just like, you know, it was, it, you had the sense that just nothing was, no paragraph was wasted in that book. And it was the type of book that I read and read sometimes where I say, okay, and this has happened to me with a lot of writers, any, anything this writer wrote, I'm in, you know, <laughs> you know, after, after, you, after you read the one book and, and, and like you, I, that's the only book I read by her, but I'll be down with anything she wrote just by that, that book alone. So that's a great, that's a great one. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful book and she is a superb writer. I agree. And, and we should mention too, that, um, Okay, so there's a historical figure that you know that her titular character is based on. And I guess it, it, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Bishop or Archbishop Lamy L A M Y Lamy. I don't know how to say that. Of Santa Fe mm -hmm. is the historical character that she was basing historical figure that she was basing that character on, and apparently she did a, a lot of research about his life. Well, there's a there's a great you know thick book by uh, a well used to be well-known kind of fallen a little bit out of remembrance today a uh, uh, american historic and historian named paul organ wrote a book uh, about his life about the actual historical figure this archbishop's life um that's supposed to be really really good i have not read it i think i gave it to you as a gift yeah um, but Worth a mention. I know we have a friend and you know listener to the show who recently read that book and gave it a very high recommendation. So shout out to our friend um, out in the Midwest 
who recently read that Paul Horgan book. But Paul Horgan is one of those writers that would come up uh, if we do a companion episode for this. He'll come up because he's a very he was a very respected in his time historian of the Western United States. So maybe a little bit more in the future to come on Paul Horgan. Yeah, shout out to our buddy who brought that up, and he was kind of like, you guys have to mention this in your episode. And we were like, well, we would if we weren't such dogs, and neither one of us has read the book. <laughs> but you, but I have the book from you, and um, that was great to get his take on it because it's, it sounds like it's really like worth reading. And I, I, it's funny because when you said we might do an episode, agreed to it, that has to do with more nonfiction Western themes, I thought, well, that's the book I'm going to read <laughs> at the beginning. There you so. Go. So, yeah. Well, but I know I think you have at least one more, maybe two more books you want to mention. So um, I'm going to I'm going to pass the ball over to you again. You know, we're kind of rounding third here, but we'll try to get through. I have a couple others I want to mention, too. So we'll try to get through them quickly. Yeah, I have two more. And do you want me to go through both of them at once or should I do one at a time? If you can do both, do both. Sure. OK, I'll just I'll just do both just to kind of just to kind of keep it on um, after I'm trying to keep my summations relatively limited. I, I think I'm doing a decent job. <laughs> um, Agreed. But anyway, um, so yeah, I do have two more and, and it's funny because again, I'm pushing out to the West and these, these last two books push out farther West are from very different times. You know, there was, there's like uh, 70 something or 80 something years between them. And uh, this is where, you know, John, this is where, you know, Jude gets, gets into the weird stuff, you know, because, because um, these are two novels set in the West that that have that do have some strange elements. So let me let me bring them up. Uh, but I I really highly recommend both of them. I don't know that many people would take me up on it, but we'll see. You know, um, the first one it's it's hard for me to take on this topic, even though this writer is not a traditional Western writer in quotes, like definitely not in terms of the the genre that we all understand. But he did write many books that were set in the West, and I think he lived in the, mostly in the West. One of our favorite writers between the both of us, John, is Dennis Johnson. And oh, yeah. um, now I almost wrote, he has a very long novel, also could have been in episode 35, set in California, that's oh, a really interesting and weird book, kind of a gothic book, and it's called Already Dead. Yeah, I would be hard-pressed to even describe that book, but it's a big book, and it's like, very West Coast, you know, but it's a strange book, as is the one I'm going to mention. But I decided not to talk about that one. What I want to bring up is a very short novel. It's actually a novella, um, but it's called Train Dreams. Yeah, it was actually it was. a Yeah, it's a very memorable. Anybody who's read this book would, would certainly remember it. And it, it has some of the classic Dennis Johnson themes that we've talked about a little bit in, I think, a number of other episodes. Um but it's strange, and it's uh, and, and it's uh, kind of mystical, enigmatic, the way many of Dennis Johnson's books are. Um, but I bring mm -hmm. it up because, first of all, it's a manageable length. It's a, it's about only about 116 pages. It was originally published in long form in the Paris Review back in the early 2000s. I think it was 2003, but it didn't come out as a standalone novella until 2011. And um, I think it was either a winner of the Pulitzer Prize or it might have been that year where they didn't give one, but it was a finalist. Um, but it, it got a lot of acclaim. And it's a, it's, a, it's a story. It's basically the story. It's very much a Western book, though. That's why I wanted to bring it up because it's primarily set in the Iowa panhandle, 
which I know Dennis Johnson. I'm not. I don't think. He, I don't believe he was born there. I think he was born on the uh, East Coast. Not, not Iowa. Idaho. Idaho. Sorry, that's what I wanted to say. Sorry, Idaho. Yeah. Not Iowa. Um, yeah. Far west, even further west than Wyoming or over Wyoming, or this shows what I know about <laughs> where the states are out there. But um, it, it actually gravitates between the panhandle of Idaho and the Pacific Northwest, like the, the state of Washington, the more rural areas of the state of Washington and British Columbia into Canada. So it's kind of another border story. And it's about this man named Robert Grenier. And he, he is a guy who's one of the people who were building the railroads out in the West. And it's basically his story in the early, like 20th century. It's actually not like in the 1800s. Um, it starts at, you know, close to the dawn of the 20th century, and it actually stretches, I think, out into the, like, you know, maybe as far as the 70s, because the book ends when he's, like, a very an old man. And it's it's about, I mean, you know, the plot is not as necessary to review in detail. He's this guy who's kind of working on the railroads. He's encountering a lot of interesting figures, Native Americans, also Asians, who were immigrants that helped build the, the railroads. And he's living, he's kind of a hermit, living kind of a solitary existence. But in the first part of the book, he does meet a woman that he falls in love with. And he has this infant, beautiful infant daughter um, named Katie. And then, and so he's just kind of eking out this existence. And he kind of wanders from job site to job site and encounters some pretty strange characters. Some, some guys that are into like sort of mysticism, almost voodoo and like, you know, prophets and people of that nature. But he settles into this life in a cabin in almost like a hermit style life with this wife and a daughter. He goes away onto this big job site for several months to work in another part of the state. And when he returns, he finds that there's this gigantic forest fire that swept through his house and burned it to the ground. And there's no sign of his wife or his infant daughter. Wow. And the rest of the book is him trying to recover from this tremendous tragedy when he already had kind of a solitary nature to begin with and grappled with a lot of the hardships that his type of existence brought to him. But in the rest of the book, he's very haunted by his losses. And there's a wrinkle in the story where he is trying to piece together basically what happened because he doesn't know everything is burned beyond recognition. So he doesn't actually know what happened to his wife and daughter, but he learned somehow that his wife uh, died but um, managed to kind of wrap the infant daughter up and leave her somewhere else in the woods. And so the rest of the book, he's kind of not quite sure if his daughter survived and still exists. Mm. And he pursues this sort of migratory lifestyle after that. And, can, and it's, a, it's really a story about grief and you know trying to recover from your losses, but he just can't escape kind of the specter and I mean that literally in some scenes is that he seems to see like the spirit of his wife in certain scenes and stuff like that. And he kind of spends the rest of his existence um, living and haunted by what has happened to him. And he, and he ends up being a really solitary kind of hermit like figure. And at the end of the book, he actually dies, but he, but he's living in such obscurity that nobody finds him for like a year. So there's these like really interesting descriptions of his body just kind of decomposing in a cabin in the middle of, the Western wilderness. And that's where all the Dennis Johnson's beautiful and eloquent writing about 
existence and the passage of time and the natural landscape kind of filters into that part of the book. And then at the very end of the novel, I don't want to give it away, but there's a flashback to this strange like roadside carnival that he saw when he was like a younger man after he lost his wife and child. And he sees this kind of freak show for lack of a better term. They bring out this like a, the kind of little theater shows they used to do in the West. They bring out this kid that's like supposedly half, half boy, half wolf. And there's this very enigmatic and interesting scene where he's watching this boy wolf on the stage, you know, go through his, his act. And then the novel ends. And I, I wouldn't want to try to explain, you know, more than that, but it was a, uh, an ending I certainly never forgot. And it's a, it's a very like enigmatic note and the way Johnson writes it, there's just like a great sense of mysteries throughout the whole novel. And I, I really highly recommend it, but you have to be kind of an adventurous reader and willing to sort of plumb some of the mysteries that we just don't have language for, you know, I would say it that way. So that's train dreams. I don't know if you, you've read that, right. Do you want to say anything about it? No, i just in the interest of time. And also I don't remember it. I'm learning nearly as well as you did, but I do remember being captivated by it, especially the writing. And uh, that's a great book. And as you say, it's a, it's a short book and, you know, just really uh, unusual for this particular genre. So that's, it's a great choice. Yeah. Thanks. And, and the last book I want to mention, I'm kind of excited to mention this because it's, it's a very deep cut. So um, lots of people know about John Steinbeck, John, we've talked about him. We could have mentioned the uh, grapes of wrath and of course he's East, East of Eden. And many of his books obviously were set in California and the West. Um, so he, he was also kind of a Western writer in a way, but the book I want to talk about is one of his earliest novels is actually his third novel. It's called to a God unknown. And I have to say, just as a side note, if you read, because I had, I spent such a long period, we talked about it on an earlier episode as like a Steinbeck devotee. I really got immersed in John Steinbeck's career and his writing. And I read a huge auto, huge biography of him. And so I read a lot of his books and I noticed that the earliest John Steinbeck books are, are very weird. You know, like this, this is actually kind of hand in hand with train dreams. And there's this real sense. Now I, I, I never actually read John Steinbeck's first novel. A lot of people don't know was a pirate novel, <laughs> that rare genre. Yeah. Um, right. Historical novel called a cup of gold. I actually have the book and I've still never read it, but it was published all the way back in the twenties. Um, have you ever read that book, John? No, no. Okay. But um, after that, uh, his, his second, his second book was actually a collection of stories. So to a God unknown was only his second novel and it was published in 1933. And he always described it as the, the novel that he had the hardest time writing, which is interesting. It took him like five or six years. It's not a very long novel and it's a very strange novel, but it's the, this is set all the way out in California. And it's a little bit of a precursor to some of the themes you would write about later, like just as far as pushing to the West and establishing yourself there. And it's just, it's about this guy who, um, decides he's going to migrate to the West coast where all the land is still unoccupied um, and buy some land and try to eke out an existence there. And the guy's name is Joseph Wayne. And so he, he goes out to California and buys some land to start a life. And he builds a house underneath this huge, massive tree. And then he loses his father 
and um, the tree starts to become a symbol of his deceased father. And this weird kind of aura about the, the I guess, the, the way that the, spirit, the souls of man, for lack of a better term, are intertwined with the natural world. And that the natural world, like trees have their own soul and the animals have their own soul. And this weird kind of symbiosis between this man, Joseph Wayne, and his land begins to, starts to sort of percolate in the book. And then uh, basically, you know, he, he, he meets a woman, kind of similar to Robert Grainier in Train Dreams. He meets a woman. He starts a life out there, builds a house. He hires some the uh, Hispanic workers. And he starts to eke out an existence out in the West. And in the course of the book, he meets some uh, elderly, like, um, for lack of a better term, like mystics that are uh, Spanish or Mexican mystics. And he starts to learn about the land. And he discovers this huge mossy rock, like on his land, that's by a stream. And this place becomes a very sacred place to him. And then he experiences a number of tragedies and um, loses some people that are close to him. And then gradually, as the novel goes on, there, the, a drought begins to come over the land and the land starts to literally dry up. And as his life gets more and more of a struggle, he becomes kind of obsessed with this rock and the stream in his backyard and starts to kind of like almost make offerings to it and try to and spend a lot more time out there. And he just sort of distances himself from everybody that he knows until uh, at the end of the book, the drought takes over the entire land and dries up the stream. And then I, I hate to use a spoiler, but it's just necessary for my discussion of the book. The guy, the guy sacrifices his own life on the mossy rock and uses his blood to drain into the rock as a kind of way to keep the rock alive because he's come become so detached and so sort of intertwined with the land that he saturate sacrifices himself ritualistically on this rock. And then at the very end of the book, while he's dying on the rock, it starts raining. So it's like a, a really strange mystical kind of story about the relationship between this man and his land in the West. And it was, it's, it's notable because you can really feel Steinbeck, in development trying to figure out what the heck he's on about what he's trying to say and it's much more obscure than some of his later more direct works with more powerful themes were so that's the other book i want to mention to a god unknown yeah you're right that that is a deep cut when it comes to steinbeck a lot of people may not even have heard of that <laughs> yeah. um yeah and it sounds awful strange and it's interesting too because steinbeck is not really known as a sort of like religious or mystical writer not really i mean that's not what he's primarily known for so it's interesting that that book at the very least you know seems to touch on a lot of those themes and as you say it was an early book in his career so you know maybe it was maybe he was in more of an experimental phase i don't know but that certainly is an interesting pick and you know like just very different than anything else We've mentioned, although those two books together, I can see why you might love them together because they both seem to have some sort of, you know, quasi-mystical uh, aspects to them, like you said. Yeah, I think a lot of people who might take a chance on them would then come back to me and say, like, what the heck were you talking about? 
<laughs> but yeah. I thought I thought I thought both books had a lot of power, and uh, you know, uh, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> well, and I remember you mentioned this, but I remember where there was a there that period in your life you were you were very you know into John Steinbeck and really interested in his writing, his career, his background. So sometimes you know, amongst readers, you take you sort of take a deep dive into a writer that means something to you, and you kind of you know, I've had writers where I've tried to read their entire catalog, someone like Flannery O'Connor or, or, you know, there've been others. So yeah, he was a writer like that for you at that time. And, you know, you, you, you brought him up in, in uh, past episodes where we talked about, you know, formational or foundational writers for us. So, and by yeah. the way, this, this Wallace Stegner novel about Western literature, which I mentioned before, where the bluebird sings to the lemonade springs, there's a full, there's a whole essay about one of Steinbeck's short stories, Jude, called, uh, the story is called Flight. And oh, yeah, yeah. He, he writes a whole essay about, and Steinbeck is not primarily known as a short story writer either, although he did write apparently some very good ones. But anyway, yeah. I, that's just a passing note. I thought you'd find that interesting. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's plenty more I could bring up. I, I know we do need to kind of wrap it up here. So I guess I'm going to, I'm going to just mention, I, there are other books I wanted to mention, but I'll mention two that are because I'll just lump them together because they're both much, much more contemporary books that are Western novels. But um, one I have not read. So I'll just mention briefly, there was a movie adaptation of it recently that I did see, and that's called News of the World. Um, but you'll remember that a few, just a few years back, that that was a pretty popular and well, you know, acclaimed book by a woman named Paulette Giles. Yeah, who I don't, I don't know anything about. But I mention it because number one, it was a it was a popular book that was being read just a few years ago. That's in this in this genre. Um, but I also mention it because, you know, I saw the adaptation. Tom Hanks was in it. It was directed by Paul Greengrass. I don't know if you ever caught up with it, did you? No, I've never seen that movie. So it's an interesting movie, but I, what I really like is the is the idea, the character, the central character is somebody who is kind of like a, a itinerant, you know, a little bit like a like almost like Charles Dickens or something, going from town to town and like a you know um, performing, but in a way. But what he does is he reads because a lot of people in these western towns were illiterate his sort of business and his job is to go from town to town and read newspapers and explain what, you know, the news of the world and kind of just, um, he would go from town to town and he would, he had an assistant and he would set up, you know, like a, like an evening in a saloon or something He'd get up at a podium and he would just simply read the newspaper. And he had a number of them and uh, people who didn't know anything about in these Western towns about what's going on in the wild, wider world would learn from him. So I, I thought that was a very interesting concept. And it and it, you know, enables the story to kind of, you know, touch on a number of themes and different, you know, uh, aspects of the time or history that, you know, uh, maybe wouldn't typically be mentioned because he's kind of bringing in what's going on in the wider world into these smaller communities out on the frontier. I thought that was a very interesting idea. So yeah. I, I, I wanted to mention that. I don't know. Do you remember that book at all? Yeah, I remember the book. Yeah, I do remember it making somewhat of a noise. And then I was sort of interested in the movie, basically because of the filmmaker and the actor, you know. Yeah, it's just an intriguing idea. And I think anybody, both of these books I'm going to mention, that one and the one that I'm about to talk a little bit about, 
you know, this is like, like, like we mentioned with any genre, if you can take a genre, but kind of like turn the diamond a little bit, just look at it in a different way or kind of shine a different light on it, maybe go down a particular path that isn't, hasn't been so, you know, uh, so uh, typically explored, you know, I think that that can always make for a really interesting book. So even though I haven't read that book, I wanted to mention it. But there's a great Western that was written, I don't know, in the last 10 years that I did want to mention. This, too, was a recent film adaptation. I saw the movie first, but I was so I really loved the movie. And I was so intrigued by the story. I actually sought out the novel and read the novel. I, th I thought the novel was excellent. You might remember where I'm going with this, but um, I do. It wasn't quite as well known as News of the World. And, you know, it might might be a little bit of an obscurity, but it's called The Sisters Brothers written by a guy named Patrick DeWitt, who's a writer I knew nothing about. But I was, this is, I really love this story. This is one of, one of the best Westerns that I can remember reading for a long time. Because it, it has, it brings together many familiar elements, but also has one particular strand of the plot that's very unusual. And I thought was really fascinating. So without saying too much about it, because I, I really recommend this book, not only to our listeners, but to you. <laughs> You know, I think you'd really enjoy this book. And the movie is great, too. The movie, uh, I can't remember who directed it. It was a Frenchman who directed it, a, a non-American director, which is sort of interesting. <coughs> Excuse me, but the two brothers are played by John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, who are both outstanding actors, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Great movie. It's a small movie, you know, it's worth, worth seeking out. But the story of the Sisters Brothers is about these you know, two brothers that the last name is sisters. So however improbable that is, you know, it is what it is. It makes for a memorable title, if nothing else. But um, <laughs> um, they are kind of bounty hunters. They work for this sort of mysterious figure na named the Commodore, which is strange because it's like a naval term. I don't know why he's named the Commodore. You know, he's out in the West. But he's sort of this shadowy figure, and he kind of sends them to do, you know, basically hit jobs you know, to borrow from another genre, they send him to find this guy who is, who's gone out into the Western territories that he wants to murder. And they come to find out that the man that they're trying to find is not like your average ruffian or outlaw, but he's, uh, he's kind of an entrepreneur and a scientist, a scientist sort of in quotes. And he has this method. He has some kind of chemical compound that he's invented that he can listen to this. I, this is a really unusual, like, uh, you know, wrinkle. And, and he's, he can't get anybody to like invest with him or follow him along, but he's convinced he's developed this, some kind of chemical compound that you put into a river. And as it, you, you basically pollute the water with this chemical compound. And as it flows down river, somehow chemically it, it makes any kind of like, uh, glints you know uh bits of gold in the rock to glow like be like bioluminescent you know and he's all through and he, and he explains he's like this is you know he's one aspect of the book it's interesting he's like you know this is this is this is science you know that's it's chemistry and, you know everybody tries to explain to they're like what the hell are you talking about but he's like this is not magic it's science and I have a way, and you'll see when we, so they, they catch up with this guy. They kind of hear what he's doing. He, there's a scene in the movie and in the book where he, he kind of dumps this chemical compound that he's created into the river. And lo and behold, 
all these elements, it's in the middle of the night and all these elements start glowing. And these, these two guys are like, holy shit, boys, we're rich. We're, you know, we're going to be rich. You know? But what happened, I mean, I'm spoiling a little bit of it. I'm sorry, but it's, it, there's a lot of elements in this book that make it enjoyable. But what happens is, well, when they get into the water, their legs start to burn. And what, you know, it's, it, it, it's a, some kind of chemical compound that's, that's essentially poison, poisonous to humans. And they don't realize, and they kind of run into the water to start collecting gold. And then, you know, there's this horrible scene where this guy's lower part of his legs are basically like rotted off. And so it takes a sort of environmental turn about, you know, uh, human greed versus, you know, trying to collect this gold and trying to like create this money-making venture, but you're basically polluting the water and they don't know enough about the chemistry to know what kind of effects it has, not only on the human body, but on the environment itself. And so one brother's like, I, I want no part of this. And of course the other one's like, you know, this is our ticket out of this business. And so it's, it has a weird kind of environmental thread to it. Um, that's, I thought, thought was really interesting and also like, sort of like touches on aspects of like, you know, kind of like, uh, early forms of entrepreneurship, like, you know, going out West and forming a new business and kind of beating competition. Yeah. I'm not saying it very well, but then at the heart of the story, there's this very, very funny and very heartfelt relationship between these two brothers and they have this history and, you know, they, uh, they go back and forth like cats and dogs a lot, but they love each other. It's a really interesting brew of elements, but I thought the book was very interesting, very funny, and it has kind of a heartfelt ending to it too. So it was a real standout to me in the last few years. I really, uh, you know, I highly recommend the book. The book's not that long. It's, it's interestingly written. Again, it's very funny. And um, I thought it was a real uh, pleasant surprise and the movie's worth seeing too. So there's a bunch of other books I'd like to mention, but we, we just don't really have time. We're going to have to cut it off at some point. Oh, no, I have to mention one more. Uh, do I have time? I don't know if you want to comment on the Sisters Brothers, but I just highly recommend that one. No, I, re I'm, I'm, I just re I remember how much you liked it, but I really didn't know much about it. And, you know, like you say a lot with like horror movies and stuff like that, if you judge it by, you know, show me something I haven't seen before, you know, <laughs> looks yeah. like this uh, – this book had a lot of that in it. So it sounds like a really cool take on like a Western genre, I would say, you know, yeah. I would check it out. It's really cool. And it's, and it's just very different, it has a very different feel than almost any other Western book that I've read. And I, I'll say this too, the, both the book and especially the movie, it's very, you know, most Western movies, they end with a big gunfight. This movie begins with the gunfight. Like, like it has, nice. puts you right into this gunfight. That's, that's, in the middle of the night so it's dark and it's very it's just dives drops you right into it and then there's a fire at the end of it. it's very memorably filmed so like the opening scene of the movie is really striking so there there's all that i have to mention one more we cannot go this is a bit of a nostalgia pick for you and i because it relates to dad and like uh, a particular you know series of books that he really loved but these are these are books that have also made quite their mark on kind of, uh, I would say, you know, more modern uh, literature. And that is, I have to mention the mystery series written by Tony Hillerman. That's all oh, yeah. And what makes these books really unique, these are, you know, solidly what I would call genre books. They're, 
They're tight, well-written mysteries. They're a lot of fun. They feature a, a, a Native American kind of cop or detective named Jim Chi. He's sort of the, mm-hmm. you know, the Sherlock Holmes character. But mm-hmm. I think they're almost all set on Native American reservations or around them. And they really um, draw from, in a very elegant and interesting way, from Native American traditions and beliefs. So this is, there's a whole long series of um, books written by Tony Hillerman. He's since passed on, but uh, I I read a few of them, but they were always entertaining. And our dad loved those books. I think some of them have been adapted, but the Jim Chi Mysteries uh, written by Tony Hillerman could not finish this episode without mentioning those. Yeah. And and Joe Leaporn, who's like the older cop that was like his mentor. You That's know. right. Joe Lee porn. Yeah. Those are, those are really great books. And, you know, Tony Hillerman may be a little bit forgotten now, but I give him all the credit in the world for, you know, as a, as a European descendant, you know, man for how much light that he, he shed upon native American traditions in this country and how much he respect he, he gave to native peoples. And I don't know, there may be differing opinions about his portrayals or whatever, but for me, he really kind of opened up a lot of interest for me in, in that, that whole, well, there are many tribes and cultures, but uh, that whole world, Native American uh, spirituality and culture. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great, that's a great closer. I mean, those are, those are really good books. They're really well-crafted and a lot of fun. Yeah. I just had to mention those and it, you know, just reminds me of dad. So, cause he really enjoyed those, which is unusual because he didn't, he didn't read much fiction. No, he didn't. Um, all right. So, you know, we'll, we'll end it there, take a quick break, and then we'll come back and wrap, wrap this episode up. All right. Okay, dude, we'll quickly touch on what we're going to read next. What are you going to read next? I am not going to touch on what I'm going to read next. All right. <laughs> no, um, so I'm going to read, uh, I'll say this, um, because we're getting to the, that time of year when we put what the, the original source of the name, the book exchange, into motion. You know, so you and I have a fall birthday and then we have Christmas after that. And I'm starting to gather my candidates. So nice. I will say I got a nice tip. I'd like to give a shout out to um, our cousin, John, Dr. Matthew Walsh from Chicago, Illinois. Um, he is somebody who's listened to some, sorry, who's listened to some of their podcasts and, uh, and has actually read a lot of my books and given me some really good feedback. Uh, he's a really great guy. So he, he tipped me off to one particular writer and I'm checking them out now. And I've got my, you know, I don't want to say any more because I've got my eye on uh, some possible exchange candidates there. So a novel by this mystery writer is coming up next for me. So that's all you're going to get. That's great. And uh, I, uh, first of all, what's up, 
Cuz, um, shout out to you out in Chicago, Illinois, city of our birth. We haven't been quite back there in quite a long time, but uh, we still we still uh, associate ourselves with it quite a bit. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that he uh, listens to the show. Uh, I'm really honored that he does, and uh, I'm glad that he gave you a recommendation. I'll be curious to hear what that uh, turns out to be. So, all right. So that's all you're going to say about that, right? That's all I'm going to say. All right. Well, next up for me is a book. I'll just keep this short and sweet. There is a book called How to Think. <laughs> so, <laughs> did you I, write it? Uh, no, I, uh, I need it, is what it, it, that's the reason I'm reading it. But uh, it's uh, How to Think. I need some help in that area. No, but seriously, it's a book written by a, a, a philosopher and kind of a, an English teacher, too, as well, a guy named Alan Jacobs, who's somebody you know I've heard of quite a bit in the past. I'm not sure I've ever read one of his books though. And this is a book literally about like, it's about thinking, but I think it has, I don't know that much about it. I just read something on it. It sounded, it's a short book. And I think it's more about, you know, how to kind of cultivate your, you know, a life of the mind basically in this age where there's so much distraction, you know, uh, through social media and through kind of immediate gratification and all everything that's coming our way. This book is, uh, I've heard is a very thoughtful kind of look at, you know, um, why it's important to keep thinking and, and, um, uh, you know, exercising your mental capacities, I guess, uh, in this age. So I thought it sounded intriguing. Again, it's not very long. So it's simply called how to think. And I'm, I'm looking forward to checking that out. So that's what I got coming. Good on. And yeah, it should be, uh, you know, I don't really know what to expect from it, but I've, I've read about it in the past and I'm looking forward to, to dive well, in. John, if you, if you learn how to think, could you please pass it along? Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, I'm almost 51 years old, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll figure out a little bit about how to think, you know, before I kick the bucket. So that would be good. <laughs> um, so how about, do you want to tease our next episode, episode 37? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is going to be wild. <laughs> so uh, this is another one we've been talking about doing for some time. And we're going to do it now. So I don't, I'm not sure what we're going to call it, but it's going to be, it's going to focus on obscure books. So John and I have long reading lists. We've been reading forever. And sometimes we read something that's way out there, you know, like, a, you know, like either, either in the sense of defined or it's not our defined, but the, the subject matter is just, you know, not something you would necessarily seek out. But some of these books, these obscure gems we've read over the years, John, have really, you know, casted bright neon light on some corner of the universe that we didn't know was there or didn't know anything about or it could be a book that's like innovative in style or just like nothing else you've ever read so we're going to go through our list and pick out some of the books we've read that are real obscure gems and we're going to share them with all of you to who are adventurous and want to go out and find some books that are way off the beating path so that's what it's going to be i can't wait I mean, it's, it's going to be another category that's going to be hard to narrow down. So, you know, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And the, and the only thing I would add to that is like it, it, it can be obscure in terms of what the book is about, but it can also be obscure in my mind. Oh, I think I lost you. I, I was making one, but one point I wanted to make um, 
just to add on to what you said is that, you know, these books, they might be obscure in subject matter or, you know, just in what they're about, but they also may be obscure in, in the sense of that they're just hard to find right now. Maybe they're out of print. Maybe they're just not very well known. Um, so, you know, it could be that kind of, it may not be like all, all like very weird, you know, subjects that are out on the fringes, but it may just be like these books are not, for whatever reason, just not popular or not, not discussed anymore. So it could be all of those things. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then um, last but not least, you know, we said we would do this a couple episodes ago. Uh, we got a suggestion from one of our listeners um, relating to episodes that we do occasionally, which we call BXC reviews, which are sort of deep dives into one particular book. And this listener, I thought, gave us a great suggestion that said, if you're going to do one of those episodes in the near future, maybe you could give, you know, tell the listeners what what the book is going to be in advance so they have a chance to read it if they want to listen along. Right, Jude? We talked about that. Yeah, yeah, that was a great suggestion. Yep. Great suggestion. And this same person also suggested a book for us to kind of review and talk about on the show. So we're going to take this both of these listeners' suggestions right now. So I want to say that we just teased uh, what episode 37 is going to be about. Episode 38 is going to be a review, a BXC review of a novel. The novel is called Leave the World Behind, written by a writer named Ruman Alam. I hope I'm saying that right. And uh, who's a writer that I had never heard of or, or read before. Have you? No, nope. So... I don't know much about this novel. It was recommended to us. I looked it up. I thought it sounded intriguing. I shared it with my co-host here, Jude. And we both decided that we were going to take this listener's recommendation. Again, we really appreciate and welcome listener recommendations. And we're going to read it. And we're going to discuss it for episode 38. And all I really know about the book is it involves a, a New York-based couple that I think either rents or somehow they go out to a house on Long Island for some kind of vacation or a break. And while they're there, there's some kind of event that happens in New York City and possibly wider than that, possibly the rest of the country. It's not really known. There's some kind of blackout where all communications go down. And then the couple that owns the house happens to be an African-American couple, owns the house. They come back to the house because of this event that's happened and they kind of let the people who are staying there know what happened. And then the rest of the novel unfolds from there. And you're kind of, I don't know much about it, but I guess you're, you're, you know, you're trying to figure out what exactly happened and how they react to this situation where they're kind of cut off from everyone they know in this house out on Long Island. That's really all I know about the book. It's called leave the novel called leave the world behind. I thought it sounded intriguing and we're going to read it and we're going to discuss it for episode 38 you know, maybe in, in, in uh, three or four weeks from now. Yeah. And I just, John, can I say something about that? Sure. Yeah. I, I want to thank the listener for the suggestion. I, I'm really excited about this. I, I, you know, and I want to encourage anybody, if we do this and we have a good episode and you like that episode, I'd like to encourage any other listener who wants to make a suggestion, do the same thing. But what I love about this is just the idea of having a book, John, that came to the two of us, not from either one of us, doesn't have any level of brother influence on it, and that we can just approach kind of neutrally and figure out whether we like the book or not and boot it around. I'm super excited to do this because I just think fresh 
thing for us. And if we don't like it, you know, we're going to say it, <laughs> you know, and if we, and if we do, um, you know, so much the better, but uh, I can't wait to do it. I think that, I think this is exciting. Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. It's, 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 uh, it's really exciting to have that contribution from a listener. We'd love to do this kind of thing. We've talked about it before. And so we're going to do it and we're both really looking forward to it. So thank you to that listener. Thank you to all of you who have listened to this episode or any of the show in the past. And that should do it for episode uh, 36. And I guess that's about it, Jude. Anything else? Yep. Just uh, to, to speaking of that, everybody who's listened, we thank you also. And it's now up to 21 countries. So we mm-hmm. welcome any listeners we have from Japan. So thank you. Yes, indeed. Thank you all for listening to the Book Exchange, and we will talk to you next time. Take care. So long.